right. Um, if you're still reading, keep reading. And I, I know it's a really actually they've done a study. It's impossible to pay attention to two things at the same time. But um, while you're in and out to reading and listening to my voice, I just want to remind everybody of the order of events because you know we remember that Rashi was talking about that it doesn't necessarily happen in the order that it happens in the Torah, but I want to share with you, remind you what the order is in the Torah. Um, so, of course, there was the, the revelation on Mount Sinai. After the revelation on Mount Sinai, there's kind of like a bit of a break in the story. Um, so, where it all of a sudden, you know, starts talking about... Um, uh, the creation of the Mishkan, right? Building the tabernacle, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so it's, sorry, the revelation. Then when we study Mishpatim, which are the, those laws that went about the slave and about, you know, if you injure somebody. So there's a whole bunch of laws. Then, then it moves on to start talking about the building of the Mishkan. Then it, and then after that, it comes to talk about the story of the golden calf. And after that is our story that we're dealing with today, the episode that's happening, you know, today. So just so you understand, that's how the Torah presented it. Remember, in the, over the last couple weeks, some of the commentators wanted to say, that's not actually the chronology of it, but I wanted to remind you how it actually flows and appears in the Torah. Okay? The Melton curriculum has chosen... I think because there's more meaty material in terms of theology and narrative and law, but they chose to skip over the stuff about the Mishkan, like the details of in the curriculum. Um, but it's it's there. I just wanted to remind everybody. Okay, good. All right. Anybody want to comment on anything in the text? Two questions. I'm surprised. What are you surprised about? Um, in verse 7, um, whoever sought the Lord would go after the tent. Whoever what? Whoever sought the Lord, okay? Not that many pages back, these people were so frightened, they want, they like, you go talk to them. But now, this is a place where they go, where's the transition? Okay, good. And second, when Moshe makes a request, that, you know, you have to lead us because otherwise we, people won't really know that you're our God, etc. And, and the response is, um, uh, Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked for your truth. What was plan A? This is plan B. Leave him there? Um, no, I think um, the first favor was in verse 16. Okay. Um, uh, or verse uh, 14 and 15. Says, sorry, yeah. Uh, verse 13 is that he says, let me know your ways. And in verse 14, God says, I will go in the lead and I will lighten your burden. Okay. So I think that's A. And then he says, I'm going to also ask this. And he says, okay, I'm going to grant that too. So I think that's the A and the B. It's not the alternative to... Do you understand what I'm... It's not an alternative to, you know, I'm going to stay with you as opposed to leave you. The other thing that it was granted is that plus... He's going to go in front of them and lighten his burden. Okay. And the, I can understand that, but you can see how it would potentially be ambiguous. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I want to highlight, actually, your first question, um, which is this idea that uh, the tent of meeting, the Ohel Moed, 
is whoever sought the Lord, right, could go there. So A, what, you, what I think you meant by where's the transition is, is that, well, the people are afraid of God, plus add to that the episode of the golden calf, and then God's like, hey, anybody who wants to come in, it's all good, and this is either A, he expects anyone to go in, or B, God actually wants anyone after the golden calf episode. They both, they both beg for a little bit of explanation. I mean, then there's a third, sorry, general question, which is, really, anyone can go in the sense of meeting? Um, didn't we learn that, no, you can't everyone go in the sense of, isn't it really for the priests and the Levites, you know? No, no, that's the Holy of Holies, which is in the Tent of Meeting, but it's a very specific part. The Tent of Meeting was where the priests did all their stuff, right? Um, that's where everything was going on. That was their, in, in practice, in reality, that was their tent. Is this a, an alternative tradition? Is this a temporary a time period? Um, it, it is a bit confusing if you have general knowledge about how you thought that the tent of meeting was supposed to work from the other sections of the Torah itself. There it's, might be seen as contradictory. Um, all right, anybody else see anything interesting? Rod, right, you raised your hand. Uh, in uh, verse 11, the Lord is talking to Moses face to face. Okay, but it's funny. Oh, he can't see my face. No one can see my face. Hide in the corner. I'll pass by. So. Yes. What is it? So, what does it begs for. There's, there's the open question of, wow, what does it mean that he spoke to him face to face? I mean, that period. You know, like, that, what is that? And then, combined with the fact that it says that they speak panim el panim face to face, and then he st- later on has to ask God to see his face, but. Then that also begs for what? But didn't you speak face to face? If you spoke face to face, didn't you already see his face? And then why would God then say no the second time? What's going on here, right? Um, so that's that's a great question. I'm putting it on the table. I, I will, we will hopefully address these questions. And if I don't, you'll make sure I remember to. Beth? This mention of Joshua and eleven kind of weird too. I mean, he's hanging out at the tent the whole time. Yeah, that he never leaves. It's a little strange. I don't know too much about that one, and I don't think any of the sources we're going to study actually answer that question. Um, on a simple level, it's taken to mean that Joshua, you can see already this is like a little bit of, if you're a novelist type of person, there's a little foreshadowing. He's going to be the one that ends up being the next you know, spiritual leader of the Jewish people. He's already been taken in under his wing by Moshe, and it's not just in political leadership, but clearly, spiritually, he's been privy to some of these things with God um, in a different way than even the other elders of Israel. Um, and he's kind of like the spiritual apprentice who, who stays in the tent. You know, while all this is happening, he seems to be very spiritually connected. That's what I take from it, but it, it is, there is a deeper question to be asked. Like, what does it mean that he's in the tent the whole time? Why? I, I'm not sure that I or any of these sources will provide a good answer if anybody else wants to answer that question either now or on the way, you certainly may, um, or ask your own question. Ron, I know that you had... I'm actually trying to think of how to, um, you know, I have a general problem, and I'm trying to think of how to phrase it, but the, the concept of, you know, seeing God's face, the, the you know, the punishment for that is, is death, and, and it's kind of, it's a punishment where I'm not quite sure that 
I don't want to say that that's not fair, but I mean, it, it seems like there might be, you know, death sort of affects you and affects a lot of other people that really had nothing to do with that. And mm -hmm. it, it just, it seems kind of strange to me that uh, God is, you know, asking for this relationship, yet uh, it's such an ironclad, you know, end of life punishment if you were to see my face. I guess there's no way to accidentally see God's face. I guess the only way to see God's face is to come in here when you're not allowed, but. It, it just seems kind of strange to me. I'm trying to figure out. You actually touch on a lot of really important points. Um, the one thing that I would start with perhaps is a bit of a challenge, which maybe will open up another possibility for you, is um, you stated almost as if it was assumed that it's a punishment. Um, is it a punishment? I think it's not clear. It could easily be taken as a punishment. I'm not erasing that as a possibility. It's a very strong possibility that it is. But... You know, for a man may not see me and live, could just be a fact. It's a consequence. Yeah, like a natural consequence. Like, it's not a punishment that if you jump in the middle of a fire, you're going to get burned. It's just what happens. You know? So, it may be more like a warning um, as opposed to a punishment. Um, you know, as a more of a natural consequence. I'll make an analogy for you. There's... Um, very interesting, intriguing, and troubling all at the same time, that episode with Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons, who at the consecration ceremony of the Mishkan, you know, when they finally built this thing, and like they're ready to go, and the priests are trained, and it's like the big day, and everybody's gathered, and they do the first offering, you know, Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons are the oldest two sons, are supposed to help them out, and then there's this, ver this set of verses that they did some sort of strange fire, um, something that God didn't want or ask, and then they were consumed by the fire and died. And then there's a debate in the tradition, parallel is what I'm saying to this, whether this was a punishment, they did the wrong thing, God said you did the wrong thing, at a very holy time you broke my rules, zap, you know you're dead, or Rosh Bam, Rashi's grandson, and many other follow him, say, no, 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 they were just, it's like, they were too close. It's like, you know, on the uh, those electrical, like, areas says, keep out, you know, you could be in danger. They, like, walked right in there when the electricity was flowing through and, and got zapped, right? They were not paying attention to the rules, and it was a natural consequence. It wasn't a punishment. Um, and then there's this whole thing about right after that, it says, don't drink if you're a priest, and all these other things, and then maybe the assumption is made that maybe they were drunk, and that's why they didn't remember the, the rules, right? And they walked into it. So I'm just putting it out there as a parallel. I don't know if that changes how to read it, if it's not a punishment. Um, but it's a really, it's a really good point. Um, and then you also bring up this idea about this uh, tension between God wanting to be in a relationship with us, setting all these things up. Revelation itself... Um, this interaction with Moses on an individual level trying to connect with him, and then the Mishkan, which is going to provide another opportunity like this tent of meeting where people can seek God. So God's asking the people to be close to him and to seek him out, and then, but there's, there's some sort of limitation. There's something going on here, but, and, it's, and it not only, like you said, don't look, not only that, but there's a serious consequence to if you get too close somehow or close in the wrong way. Um, it's a little bit ambiguous, which is, it's poetic, you know, there are words here like panim el panim, face to face, seeing my goodness, seeing my back. You know, what does that mean when we're talking about God, right? It's a little, 
It's a little interesting. You know, it's a little interesting. Um, okay. Is this the first place that God ever is seen as uh, almost personified as, as a person? Because no. Saw Moses in a, in a bush, of, uh, in a flaming bush, and it's it's not. In fact, Jacob. Well, so I, I don't want to be yes and no is what I would say. Jacob actually sees the angel that he wrestles with. And Jacob's before Moses, Panim El Panim, face to face, right? Uh, God appears to Abraham. What did Abraham see? I don't know. The Torah doesn't tell us. But appears a visual word, right? He appeared to him. What? Abraham saw three angels. And if you believe the No, I don't want to. You're right. He did. But if you, but if you, I, I want to pause you because that, that Parsha begins with God appeared to Abraham. And the rabbis, you don't have to read it this way. Some rabbis say God appeared to Abraham in the form of the three people that he sees walking. But the whole verse is God appears to Abraham, right, in the tent of the heat, of, when Abraham was in the, in the front of the tent in the heat of the day. And that's when the rabbis say God appeared to Abraham to do Bikur Cholim, to visit him after his adult circumcision. Then he sees the three guys and he runs out. You could read it as he appeared to him as, you know, kind of read it as, even though it doesn't say as, the three guys, and he rushed to him, or you could read it as God appeared to him, right? And he was hanging out with God, and then the three guys came, and he, I don't know if you're, uh, some of you are around on the Shabbos that I talked about this, but one of the, the commentaries is that that's how powerful the mitzvah of, of um, a welcoming and guest, Hachnasar Rochim, is that Abraham was with God, and he basically told God, excuse me, I have something else I need to do. There's these people. He leaves God's presence to greet the people. So that's a second way of reading it as well. So, but anyway, and Abraham talks to God. You know, what? we don't know. Sometimes it's just by a bear. He just speaks and maybe he doesn't appear at all. It's a disembodied voice. We never really know exactly um, what, they, what they mean or what, what, you know. You remember when Abraham was arguing with God about Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, I'm trying to imagine that conversation. What was, who, who, who was he talking to? Like, if you had to actually picture the scene, is, is something there? Does he see something? You know, or is he talking in his head? Is he talking, is he actually talking out loud? You know, it's, we don't really know. You know, and if you look at um, even modern artistic stuff, like movies and things like that, when they want to show God, it's usually a light or a booming voice. You know, or sometimes an, uh, an actor who's a portrays like an angel. What? Like Morgan George Burns. Burns. Right, like George Burns. <laughs> right, a, a cigar smoking, uh, whatever. Um, I know. I, my, my God is Morgan Freeman. Right, Morgan <laughs> Freeman. Right, Morgan Freeman. You know, so, but, you know, the, the, we struggle with, because for the person watching the movie or the show, yeah. you need God portrayed somehow. Like, you need to focal point, or was this all happening in his head? We don't know. But th- that's why this, these verses are more descriptive in terms of God being somewhere and Abraham being somewhere and his face and his back and God's hands. You know, it's very anthropomorphic. You remember, I hopefully you recall an earlier conversation we had in this class, which is, and I told you, this is my quiz for you. What would Maimonides say to the idea that face-to-face, seeing his back, God using his hand. What would Maimonides say about those? Do you remember? Uh, it 
what you wanted to classify prophecy in ter terms of levels and said Moses had the most intimate. That may be true. Then, but he, I don't think he could define exactly what it was. But when he said he spoke to God, he put that at a higher level than the other prophets. That would be true. But, but I think he resisted the anthropomorphism. Exactly. Yeah. Maimonides would have been like, there was no hand of God. There were no faces here. No one had nothing. There was no back, right? These are all metaphoric or allegorical terms to, to teach a lesson about relationship with God or the dynamic that was going on between Moses and Israel or, I mean, Moses and, and God, whatever. There's, there's no... He is, like, on the far end of the spectrum. There is zero anthropomorphism. That, that's... Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jewish mother. Um, um, yeah, he would be totally against that. Now, now other, other, um, other folks are not. I mean, Rashi is mm, maybe, I don't know, not the opposite end of the spectrum, but Rashi seems to, we'll see that probably. Um, uh, he entertains the idea that perhaps you could see God, and God actually has some sort of figure of some kind, or at least a projected figure, that God could project himself in a way to Moses. Um, but Rambam would say, there's, no. There's just, that's just no. There's a big no. Um, yeah. No, I like the big I like to agree with Rambam because it's always a male form. Mm. And nice. Mm. I know, I don't have to set myself up. But I would like to believe that God is not in a human form of any gender. It's a really nice insight that not only um, does the anthropomorphism perhaps limit God theologically, but it also is a very limiting to put a gender on God. Is God a gender? I think most of us would say no, um, even if what we're picturing is different. So it's a really nice perspective. Um, okay. Anybody else? Yeah, Jay. It, it, whether we take it literal or metaphorically, it seems like this uh, episode is an inflection point. Mm -hmm. in, in the sense that up to now, uh, according to the Torah, God has been very visible and involved, uh, engaged in what's happening uh, from Abraham through um, freeing the Jews, freeing the, the Israelites from Egypt, through Sinai, etc. And at this point, whether he's literally face-to-face -face or whether he's metaphorically face-to-face, -face, he seems to be saying... Okay, we've sort of we've hit a point in our relationship, and it's now going to change. And um, there will be no face to face, to be sure. Though I'll still be around, and and we can speculate as to what those motivations <coughs> might have been. But it just feels like the story is going to change in a very in a dramatic way. Very nice. And and go ahead. Well, that's not really true, I think, because. Now we're going to have the, the cloud and the pillar of fire day and night for the next 40 years. God's presence right then and there. Everyone can see that. So, yeah, Mary, go ahead. Oh, well, the one thing that struck me was on verse 18, he's like, oh, let me behold your presence. Like, he kept asking God for things, and it felt like he was kind of getting a little, like, eager, like, a little, like, um, <laughs> 
you know, like, <laughs> like, oh, you know, over and I can't think of the word, but like he, he was trying to like see how far he could go, like how much he could ask for. Great. He knows he can't see God's face. Like God's been like before, like don't get too close, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he, yet he's like, oh, I've asked for this. He said, yeah, I've asked for this. He said, yeah, I'm not going to ask for this. You're going to like one of the sources that oh, we'll really? God willing okay. study because that's very reflective of um, feeling that way, perhaps. And to get back to the, the point that Jay and Rodney were um, debating a little bit, I think both, both of you are reflecting true things. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to dwell on as, we kind of, or as you read the text again in life or maybe throughout the rest of this class, if perhaps it, it is or it isn't a turning point. Um, the way I would read it a little bit more like Jay would be that God's role in the life of the Israelites was very... Now, Moses was his partner in many different ways, but God was doing the heavy lifting, like, really the heavy lifting. Um, And, you know, Moses basically parroting. God would say, go do this, go say this, go do that, and, you know. um, And recently, you know, Moses had to do more. He was judging the people and so on and so forth. But it, it does seem like God saying to him... We're more, I don't know if we're more equal partners, but I'm shifting some of the responsibility could be one way to look at it. Um, And it's going to be a little bit more on you um, now, and I'm going to take a little bit of a step back. Um, And I'm setting up the system with the Mishkan, which happened before. You're going to have to... You're gonna to have to work this whole system, right? You got a, you got holidays coming up, you know that we're gonna tell you about. We got uh, worship uh, practice that has to be, um, you know, you're gonna to have to come to me for guidance. But there's a little bit less parroting. Moses has to make more decisions on his own. He does make a couple of mistakes, not many, but he does coming up. God doesn't pre-tell him what to do. God that some often tells him afterwards or during. Mm-hmm. Or when he asks, um, perhaps there is a different relationship that it signals. I'm not sure, but it's a good it's a good debating point. Any anything else? Um, I just want to point out a few things. Again, I'm just going to like hit the points and then leave them, and then we'll study the texts, and then whatever doesn't get answered from our discussion around the text, you know, let's leave a little bit of time at the end um, for that. Um, I want to point out that. Um, um, It says in verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one man speaks to another. The indication about that is like, you know, maybe equality almost or casual comfort relationship. I mean, to say that God speaks to Moses like a one person speaks to the other, it either is a reflection of their relationship and or it's giving us a real clue into they were actually talking. You know, remember I was telling you before, how were they communicating? Was it mind reading? Was it, you know, how was it at, no, maybe it's just a, it's a factual statement by the Torah. They, just to let you know, they talked like you and I talk. You know, God would say this, Moses would say that, God would say this, God would say that. That's just, that's how it was, in case you thought it was some miraculous communication device. It's not. Or it just indicating they, they had a, they had a, a close relationship, or both. I don't think so because he still can't look him in the face. If you right. talk to me, you look in my face. I look in your eyes. Or whatever. Well, the whole verse is contradictory because the first thing it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. 
That's what it says. Yeah. I know. Well, that's that. Yeah, we, that that we pointed out. That, but in that verse, in that verse, it says they speak face to face and they speak like one person to another. So, that's an interesting line. Um, the other one is um, Moses has. Well, this is the eager beaver question slash requests. You know, Moses starts to get a little bit. So you said to me, lead this people forward. But you haven't made known to me who you will send with me. Like, he starts to get into it with God a little bit. Like, quoting God back to himself, telling him what God promised, and then asking a question. It's a little... You could read it a little chutzpahdik, right? You know, you don't... People don't really like being quoted back to themselves, do they? I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you, you, we might use that... We might use that as a rhetorical device when we're talking to somebody if we want to convince them of something, but we don't really like it. Um, so, and then further you said, right? Even more, you said more. I've singled you out by name, right? So, in verse 13, now, if I've truly gained your, gained your favor, you said that you, you, I was great and that you singled me out and that we're buddies. But if you really mean it, right? Then, you know, that's kind of how he's talking to him, you know. If I truly pray, let me know your ways. That's another verse. He wants to know God's ways. What's that mean? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, tell me a little bit. What is he getting at? What does he want to know? He wants to understand God. Right, he wants to understand God. He the essence of God. So this is the debate. Is he asking a very high-level, spiritual, almost metaphysical question? Let me know about... I want to understand the what's God. Right? Or... Is let me know your ways mean I want to know how you operate? Um, or is it more practical? There's a very specific thing I want to know. What is maybe, you know, sometimes we ask something that sound, could be taken generally, but in a context, the other person knows what we're really asking. He's asking something specific. Um, but I don't know. What does it mean? Um, and then it says, why almost? That I may know you and continue in your favor. Did you notice this whole favor thing? Consider that to this nation as your people. And then he has this other line about considering, remember, the Israelites are your nation. Why does God need this reminder? Well, the obvious answer would be because they just committed the sin of the golden calf. God, you know, for lack of better terms, excuse the um, uh, lack of sanctity here, but God freaked out when, to Moses when he saw what was going on down there. And he almost wanted to kill them all. At least, so to speak. At least that's what God said, right? And obviously some of the commentators say he was just testing Moses. Fine. But that's what he said. Then it gets resolved, you know, with some problems. We talked about that last time. But And then Moses is basically in the tent. Now he's back with God. And now he's saying, remember again, well, is it resolved or not resolved? Is he still nervous that God doesn't want them? What does that have to do with knowing his ways? Right, what's the connection? Is it like a non sequitur? Well, I yeah. think he wants to know more about what God expects from them, right. maybe so that they don't do more like things that make God mad. Great, great thought, right? Which is where some of the commentators go with this. And so in, my point is, is instead, for example, of interpreting it as, which some of them do, as being like an asking God's essence question, it's a little bit more practically oriented, right? Like, God, I'm tired of guessing what you want. Right. I want to know how you work here because I want everything to go well for us. Remember, we're your people. Don't make us guess and be punished. 
right? I don't know if that's the way to read it, but that but, is one way to read it. But yeah. they're not exclusive. What's not exclusive? Right. That yeah. I'd like to know God's ways so that I can explain God to Israel and uh-huh. the nations so that we continue in your favor and I continue in your favor. And oh, by the way, I really want, want to understand know. the meaning of life yeah. and Great. God along with yeah. For a moment, for a moment, they're not exclusive. Jay, with me, they're not exclusive, but bear with me for a second. Following Mary's interpretation, what does line 14 say? And God said, He said, I will go in the lead and lighten your burden. Well, without Mary's kind of interpretation there, what, what kind of answer to that? I want to know your ways. The answer is, I will lead and lighten your burden. What? That's not what I asked, right? What does it mean, I will lead and lighten your burden? Perhaps it means. Okay, I get it. You want to not, you don't want to mess up, right? You don't, you want, you want direction so that everything goes well. All right, I'll give you that direction. I will lead you down the path so you don't feel like you're, you're always, you know, under this burden of, am I going to lead the people right because God might want to destroy them again or something like that. So maybe you read in that direction. I'm not sure. And God says to him, unless you go and lead, do not make us, and, and he said to God, unless you go and lead, do not make us leave this place. For how shall now now this he has his second this is his second like little like Utsiness, right? He says, For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us, so that we may distinguish your people and I from every people on the face of the earth? Like God just said I will lead. And now he's like, Yeah, and you better lead because how will you know? No, he's saying you better stay. Don't you think that's what he's saying? Yes, oh, you mean that God stay should with stay with them? them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, think, I think you're right. He's pushing it, meaning like not just lead temporarily, but to stay with us always. And what does God say back? The Lord says to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked. For you have truly gained my favor, I have singled you out by name. And God says, okay to that one. And then, and then God, uh, he, Moses says, oh, let me behold your presence. What's the difference this is what the, the commentators also want to discuss. What's the difference between asking God to know his ways and to behold his presence? And this is where I might say to Jay, maybe the first one is what Mary's saying, and this one is what you were saying. The first one is about, I need some help figuring out how to navigate things in light of everything that happens. I want to know how it works, how you operate. And the second one might be, and, and I also want to know, like, I want to know who you are. <laughs> Take off the mask, you know. I really, I want to understand you, right? I really want to get it. Because um, he's done this whole thing about being singled out by name, so he kind of is playing his card like, no, oh, we're buddies. We've been doing this thing together. You told me how great I was, right? Come on. You can show me, right? And then that's when we get the whole thing that we've been talking about. Nope. I'm not going to show you my face. I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you my back. You can't see my face. Um, you know, that's how it ends. Metaphor for his ways. Right. Or, or the essence of God. Right. Mm-hmm. It will never be understandable to man. Correct. That is definitely one way to read it. Um, definitely one way to read it. So, that being said, hopefully highlighting some of the interesting parts of the text, putting out some questions, um, a few less answers, but some answers, um, and then maybe jumping to some text. Yeah. So what I would like to do is... Uh, it says not, we're not equal. Huh? That says we're not equal. What says we're not equal? 
Which is a set, you know. Um, the, the, the fact that he can't see his face, you mean? Yes. If yeah. we're not equal, I'm still, I'm still God, and everybody's got to know it. Yeah. Um, so, I'm still a man. I'm still a man. <laughs> I'm still a man. I'm still a man. I'm still a man. I'm still a man. I think it's incredible that this exchange is even in the Torah, right? If God is writing this narrative, this isn't necessarily something that's, this is sort of giving, you know, showing a little bit behind the scenes, not so much the awesome definitiveness and power of God, but the fact that there's this exchange and that, you know, it can go back and forth like that, it's almost like if you were writing your own narrative, you, not that he's writing a narrative, but if you were writing a narrative, you, you wouldn't necessarily include this section. This doesn't make you appear uh, as awesome and as powerful as, as you know, all the, all the previous miracles that happened, which brings me to the number one point that I don't understand it. God could have very easily have just made this all happen the way he wanted it to happen. I don't understand why uh, it's such a it's such a tug of war. You know, the whole concept. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, without letting that topic totally take up the time, I would say this goes really back to the free will discussion. That God is is not... The way that the Torah seems to show God in relationship to humankind and the Jewish people, certainly in the in the Chumash, right, is, you know, God really lets us make our choices, um, and often presents situations that are not obvious, right? It's not like all the golds on one side and the poison ivies on the other side. So it's like, well, that's not much of a choice. I know where I'm going, right? Um, it, you know. Um, I, uh, there's deeper philosophical musings about that on the surface though I just I do like that the t- I think it's part of the success of the Torah in, in terms of its being intriguing to humankind is, is that it kind of reflects the ambiguity of life that we feel it's not some super pure stories that it's like everybody know everybody's so awesome and they always know the right thing to do like all the heroes are the heroes and the choices are so clear and you know because then we can look at that and perhaps be inspired by the fact that we had these ancestors who were perfect and everybody made good decisions and God who was always there to tell us exactly what to do but then we live this life I'm like that's not how I mean how do you relate to that um, so I mean on a surface level of just utility for us I think it's um, the Torah kind of speaks to us a little bit more in the language of what it is to live life and that's part of perhaps its eternality I don't know um, at the danger of jumping to a very intellectual article, um, but I think it's unique um, in terms of what it has to say, I'm going to ask you to turn to one two sixteen. Excuse me. Um, it's I know it's in the middle of a source, but the source is long. Israel Knoll wrote this. He's alive today. I studied with him this summer at the Harvard Institute. He's a really incredible biblical scholar. He's one of those he knows like everything by heart and. He is really, he's a religious guy on the one hand, but he's a, like, a modern religious guy in the sense that he is totally comfortable speaking about the Torah in terms of different authors or different sources, while at the same time, you know, there's a religious guy, you know. Um, so, you know, kind of like, I don't dwell on that. I mean, I don't have an objection to it either. I'm comfortable talking about it that way too. Um, but... Anyway, the point is is that he is 
this is the recognition of the first, I think it was one of the first questions that came out, about this tent of meeting business where anybody can just walk in, right, and say, anybody who seeks God can just walk into the tent of meeting? Um, that's what it says at the beginning of the verses. It's like, what? I mean, anybody can just walk in. That's weird. Um, we have a whole set of other sources that claim that the tent of meeting is for the priests. Um, so he talks about them as two different traditions inside of our Torah that are both there, right? And the tension between the two different traditions that exist. That one is the priestly tradition, which is, that's the, that's the domain of the priests. Um, and this is a, a different tradition, which is like a prophetic type of thing where if you want to speak to God, you want to see if God might speak back to you, this is, this is the place to go. This is where God might speak to you. It's more of what he's going to call the prophetic tradition. Then the priestly tradition, not verses, but in comparison to or in contrast to the prophet. Do you get the setup? Yeah. yeah. It's very intellectual language, but um, I'm going to read this one and try to translate the English as we go along. Some of you will get it, but it's just it's it's heavy. It's dense. The tension between the two different pictures of the tent of meeting may therefore be described as a debate. I'm going to line 65. Did I say that? Um, therefore, be described as a debate concerning the place of sanctity and the relationship between it and social and, and social structures. So what he's saying is is that this whole the different pictures of priestly versus the prophetic. There there's a, there's a debate here about this great place of sanctity and its relationship between that and the social structures of the community. What does he mean by that? The priestly approach sees holiness and the holy place as constituting the central axis of Israelite society out of its cultic institutions concentrated on the priestly class. The other thing that I didn't mention that he points out, the text that we just read says that the tent is where? A little bit outside the camp. If you read Vayikra, it says, where's the tent of meeting? Right in the middle. Hmm. Which is it? Did it move? Maybe. That's a way of making the two fit. Right Right after the Golden Cap episode, the tent of meeting was on the outside. When they finished all the construction of the Mishkan, and blah, 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 it got incorporated into the middle. Right? Fair. You could say that. But he's wondering, so he's saying the priestly group, they want the sacred place to be right in the middle. It's the center of everything that happens, is, is the tent of meeting, which could make sense to us, right? Um, and in addition, who else is then at the center? The priests, <laughs> right? That, that their job is important. If they're, if they're the ones running the holiest place, and the holiest place is in the center of the institution, and the, and the rest, and the center of the community, and the community is supposed to kind of be centered around this place, then they are also at the center of everything. Fine. In contrast, the prophetic tent of meeting expresses the opposing view, which sees sanctity in the holy place as an elemental ex- element external to society and to its institutions, which even contains a certain anach- uh, anarchistic dimension. In other words, he's saying, well, in the prophetic tradition, no, the holy place is outside the city. It's external, right? The social institutions, the politics, um, the way that the community runs is here, and when you reach God, to reach God in a prophetic sense, you've got to leave that. You've got to go outside yourself, kind of, so to speak. That's where you reach God. That's where you reach out to God. And it's almost like anarchy in the sense that the power structures of the social institution are here. But you can go out to there, and if God tells you something, right, 
that overrules or contradicts or you know goes over the power structures that are here. The God's power is not incorporated, or the sanctity of God is not incorporated into the social power structure. God's power is external to it. So if you're wondering, I don't know if you have a clear, oh, which one you like better, I kind of, they both sound right, don't they? In some way, shape, or form, shouldn't God be in the center on the one hand, but also maybe this appealing that, you know, that each of us can find God by stepping outside and that, I don't know. But some, sometimes for a lot, for people... You, you're a prophetic guy, okay? I don't agree with either. You don't agree with either? No. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I can believe that you can find God anywhere. Right. You're like right? Right. right. You don't have to be in the center or outside the center? The Torah, as an edited document, according to Israel Knoll, would probably agree with you. That's why they're both there. Right? That's what he would say. Because if you're making it, cleaning it up, then you wouldn't have these contradictions. He would say, the Torah, the Masoretic tradition of the Torah, is is to say that both are true. Because you have this issue of back in the, in the Torah text that you know, I, I will, uh, you know, if you're not going in the lead or you're coming, you're not coming, it's a different concept of God being everywhere. Like, I hope when we leave, oh, yes. God will come with us. Right, well, so we, we're traveling between the biblical context of theology and our context of theology. Uh, clearly, according to most scholars, you'd be, ch- be hard-pressed to find an ancient Near Eastern scholar, a b- biblical scholar of the Bible itself, to say to you that already back then they had, even the enlightened man or woman was walking around thinking to themselves that God is everywhere in the way that we think of today. Um, clearly, in the most scholars believe that the person of the ancient world thought that gods were connected to their regions. And so this appeal, God, you need to come with us, is thinking in the ancient mind, like, makes sense. Like, don't, don't stay in your, what maybe was perceived as your region, because God helped them get out of Egypt where the Egyptian gods were there. Yeah. And God defeated them. God showed that he could leave his place, wherever he came from, and wiped those gods out. And then God brought him to Mount Sinai where God revealed God's self. So the people are thinking, so this is God's home, right? God, God's the God of the wilderness or something like that. Moses is saying, well, you're telling us, well, you need to come with us, right? You know, you, you, can't, you have to leave your place. And he's saying, okay, I will. Um, so whether implied in that is that God is almost like they were children, God's teaching them, I really am everywhere. You know, <laughs> you don't, I don't actually live here. Um, and so he's like, of course I'm going to go with you. Or almost a radical request, God says, okay, I'll leave my home. Um, and God decides that, you know, he's going to leave his home and conquer all the other gods in a kind of a Greek polytheistic uh, uh, notion. Yeah. Didn't God say last year when we were studying Shemot 1? That I'm ahead of all gods, I'm above yes. all gods. Absolutely. And you could take that to mean I'm above all the perceived gods, right? You yeah, think right. that there are other gods. I'm telling you I'm I'm bigger than them, right? Yeah. Or it literally could mean I am the head god. There are other gods. I'm just the biggest one. I'm the main one. I'm the Zeus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, ancient Near Eastern scholars and biblical scholars of the Bible, they a lot of them believe that the, the core belief was certainly polytheistic and that the Torah reflects that. But again, it goes back to the same comment that I made. The, the presumption is, from later sources looking back, is, is that, yes, that may have been what the average person thought, 
But the whole point is God's educating them and teaching them that that was all not true, right? God, God's self, the Torah, in a sense, is already understands monothe- true monotheism. But the people weren't there yet, including maybe even Moses, right? Including maybe even Moses. They weren't there yet. Um, or you could say that Moses, of course, was there, which is what a lot of the classic commentators like to say, like Abraham knew, like Isaac knew, like Abraham kept kosher, you know, all the things. So, you know, it's, it just depends on how you want to look at it. But just to be able to move a little bit farther in this text, one could therefore speculate that the well-known tension between priesthood and prophecy lies at the basis of conflict. All right, next paragraph. It is clear that both of these pictures of the tense of meaning also reflect different approaches regarding God's place in the world and the nature of his relation to Israel. The priestly tradition emphasizes the imminence of God. Imminence meaning that God is like with us. We can God's tangible, God's in our lives, God acts in the world, right? Religious certainty is attained by the fixed presence of God within Israel. The purpose of the complex cultic system practiced within the tent of meaning is to facilitate God's continued presence among his people. In contrast, the prophetic tradition claims that God's place is in the heavens that it is only for the purposes of revelation that God descends in his cloud and momentarily reveals himself at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Perhaps going back to Jay's thing, that this uh, idea that when, when Moses was up there on Mount Sinai with God, that it represented a major turning point, where God said, you know what, I was really involved. I was the imminent God before, but now I'm only going to come, we'll check in sometimes, you know, I'll talk to you, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not hanging out all the time, right? We'll have a place where we'll meet you know, on, on certain times when you come to the tent of meeting, I'll, I'll accept your call. Um, but I'm not going to be hanging out all the time. At the conclusion of, this revel- of his revelation, he returns to his former place. Hence, the power of the religious experience and the prophetic revelation described here lies not in its constancy, but in the intimacy of the fleeting encounter. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one man speaks to another. Um, in other words... In the prophetic tradition, according to Israel Canole, who is separating out these strands, remember, any scholar who makes a, you know, a theory about it, I mean, you don't have to separate it and contrast them these way, this way. He's making a compelling argument that these are different traditions, and this is what this one represents, and this is what this one represents. You don't have to agree that they're so separate and that they represent such different points of view, but it's very compelling um, that this prophetic view is like, in between moments of revelation, you know, we're hanging out. We're doing our human thing, right? We're not, God's not a constant presence. God is a fleeting presence. Um, and that's what the tent of meeting represents. Um, that there are certain times when God really appears and certain times when you're, you're modeling around. Yeah. Well, it's an acknowledgement that you know, most of us live in a secular world mm-hmm. where God's not part of our lives, and certainly not day to day, but perhaps almost never, mm-hmm. if ever. And uh, you know, we leave it to the holy, the holy uh, priests or the holy people who live constantly in the presence of God. Yeah. They have this aura about them, and, and this that's a description of of these two types of people. I think that uh, you know, the whole the whole idea of the mitzvot, Judaism, mm-hmm. is an attempt to bring God into the mundane, so that you know as you go through your day, constantly following the mitzvot is to connect you to that holy presence. 
Yeah. And that's the system that was built up. I think what you're saying, which generally, um, if I had to pick one of these systems as appealing to my creative, soulful side, as the prophetic tradition is, I kind of lean towards, in reality, I'm more of the priestly tradition, that through our behaviors, the way that we connect in the daily world, we actually do try to maintain the presence of God. I mean, I always feel it that way. Um, as opposed to God isn't with us until some revelatory moment. Um, and I do think that um, there's a, a rabbi named Max Kedushin who died um, early, um, I think he was only like 40 something or 50. Uh, I think he died in like the 1970s. Um, he, uh, I think it was his term, I'm, I might be coining it the wrong way, or repeating the coining of his term the wrong way, which is, I think he called it, um, um, uh, not typical, normative, normative spirituality. And what he was talking about is that, you know, there's one way of doing spirituality, which is the prophetic way, which is you leave the camp, you know, you go to a special place, tent a meeting, top of a mountain, whatever, you meditate, you commune with God, you have this amazing experience, and how, and then when you come back to the people, how do you communicate that to everybody else? There's no way that they can really, they, didn't, they weren't there with you, they didn't, you ever had one of those moments where you're, you just, you, you saw something, you feel something, it's clear, and then you try to like, bring somebody else in, and they're like, uh-huh. <laughs> yep, that's crazy. You know, or, or they just don't understand you. They don't understand what you're saying. It's hard to share that. It's a type of spirituality that's difficult to share. Um, and Kedushin talked about Judaism as a, well, hopefully can all have those moments sometimes in our lives. But even more important than that is this normative spirituality where we try to create spirituality by davening together, eating Shabbos dinner together, celebrating holidays together, helping other people together, singing together, loving each other. This is when we, that's the shared spirituality that we have, where we, we, can, we, we did it together and, and it's something that we can communicate about and that connected spirituality, that shared spirituality, he thinks is overall even more important than what part of what Judaism is about. So I think that's really nice too. Yeah, Daryl. Something happened this week actually, that even, it happened in the Holy Land though, um, we saw the ISIS attack on Israel, you know, at the, at the border, on at Syria, Syrian border, and then somehow at the Vietnam, Israel kind of like fought back a little bit, and then after that, obviously on social media, it showed it, there was some kind of, uh, right at the spot, there was some kind of weather phenomenon it was like a cloud came over and... I didn't hear that. Yeah. It was a, yeah. A cloud came over at the spot. It was on social media. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, you know, yeah, but it seemed, it seemed like, you know, it really like, don't, I put, don't mess. You know? Um, uh, but I feel God's with us all the time, no matter where I am, actually. You saw too. Yeah, a storm. Yeah, a storm. I was like amazed. Yeah, I mean... I, like, don't mess, you know. Yeah. I do not have a red phone to God, so I don't know if that was God or not. Um, but yeah, well, these are the things, you know, I don't know. Um, okay, so um, um, that's Israel Canole. Let's, let's, look, let's look at um, Commentary 4, uh, the same page, 217. Targum Unculus, this is an Aramaic translation. 
which includes because of how any translation is a commentary, right? Um, so it's an Aramaic translation, which is now then translated in English for you, which tries to interpret a little bit about um, what it means to speak face to face with God. Um, it's very brief, so I'll just read it. Um, the Lord spoke with Moses, speech with speech, just as man speaks with his friend. So how does the translation in Aramaic translate face to face? Speech with speech. Now how does that change things? They weren't looking at each other. There was no face to face. And why does that help? What does it do? It solves the problem of why you say it, sorry, what? Explains the whole cleft in the rock thing later. You know, you can you can still have a conversation with God and not see His face. Exactly, it eliminates the contradiction at the end of that section, because it first says that He spoke God panim al panim face to face, and then He says He can't see my face. So Targum Uncle is saying face to face is in quotes. Face to face is means buddy to buddy. They were speaking to each other. Like, not God says in a booing voice to cowering Moses. It's a one-way speech, you know, where he hears it, oh, yes, God, and that's it. No, they, they did this, like what we're doing. That's all it meant. Panima panima is a, is a phrase. It just means that they were speaking speech to speech, right? Um, and then how is that justified? Because the second phrase is like one person speaks to another. Right? That's the def he's using that as his definition to then go backwards and define what panim al panim means. Panim al panim means that they spoke like one person speaks to another. The, the second part of the phrase is the definition of the first part of the phrase. By the way, this is not entirely unreasonable or uncommon case. You're like, that's BS, you know, he's just trying to reduce the contradiction. Maybe, but um, it's actually not entirely, un it it's not uncommon at all for um, a, the second half of a phrase, when the first half is a little bit more poetic, to be the definition of it. Um, the question is whether you think panim al panim was meant poetically or metaphorically, or whether you think it really meant panim al panim, which you can't get around, does literally mean face to face. Unkelis says, no, 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 it's not literal. It's, it's, it's metaphoric, it's poetry, and it means what the second half says it means. It means they, were, they went back and forth with each other. That's what, that's what it means. You understand? So that's the, that's the commentary's device um, of trying to understand panim al panim a little differently. Okay? Any comments or questions about that? Just a, a Where quick else one. does panim translate as speech, though? Uh, nowhere. Nowhere. So it's face. <laughs> right. Well, so, in, in the modern conversational Hebrew, yeah, but we don't know that. that doesn't mean to the face. Right. It's another use of the same word to mean in the presence of. Right. Or more intimate. But it doesn't personal. mean a physical face. Right. So the root word can often mean in front of or before, you know, before me. And it doesn't literally have to mean um, face to face. The, w the form of that root, panim, means face. Means face. And what Rod asked, does it ever mean speech anywhere else? And the answer is no. I mean, nobody really ever translates other uses of the word panim to mean speech to speech. That is a contextual translation because the second half of the phrase is that they spoke like one person to another. 
And if you see panim al panim to be a phrase as opposed to literally face to face, then that's it could be a fair way of translating it. Yeah. Is onkelos the first translation, or is the the uh, Greek translation the first? I th- no, I think the Greek translation is before. Uh, let's say it was used in Babylonian synagogues during the Talmudic era. <coughs> I still think the Greek translation was first, because yeah. Greek is more Mishnaic times, Aramaic is more Talmudic times. I would, if I had to put my money on it, I would say the Septuagint, the Greek translation was before the Uncleus translation. That would be my uh, guess. It's an educated guess, but not a certain answer. Um, yeah, you want to say something? Yeah, yeah go, please. So, when I was looking, going back to the original source text, the... Yeah. Um, the whole discrepancy between face-to-face and then not face-to-face. After the speaking face-to-face, there's a little bit more, and you talking about it um, being chutzpah, being more, more attitude, more sass, and maybe it's like, okay, I'm going to put you back in your place. Could be. And now you can't see my face anymore. In other words, they were speaking face-to-face right. until Moses started saying, quoting God back to himself, right. asking for things, and then he said, you know what? Face to face thing isn't working out so well. <laughs> talk to the hand. Talk to the hand, literally. <laughs> talk to the hand. You, you, can, you, can, you can talk at me while I'm walking away. <laughs> you know, I like that. Uh, I like that interpretation. Um, I'm not sure it's the contextual um, truth, but I, I really like that interpretation. But I, I do, it's a nice way of emphasizing. Um, how you characterize Moses' behavior, right? That if you were to interpret it that way, it's an indictment of Moses' behavior and how he speaks to God. The alternative is to say, you know what? God says, God said to Moses, we're panim al panim, we can speak to each other like anybody. So Moses says, all right, so let's do that. Um, I got some questions for you. <laughs> you know, uh, spiritual questions. I got some. Well, uh, you said this, and what is that happening? You know, I got. Okay, fine. If we're if we're doing this, then I, I all right. You know, I, I got some questions for you. So I'm I'm not sure which way to read it, but um, about the dinosaurs. If you <laughs> if you look at um, uh, two eighteen, it it just reinforces a little bit here. Um, you know, the, the way Panim al Panim was used, uh, that's when Jacob meets the angel. Um, there's a description of Moses at the very end of the Torah that says no one was like Moses, who the Lord singled out face to face. And then in the Chazkel, it's about, um, you know, judging face to face. These are the other times that it's used, and this is what the scholars have to work with in terms of evaluating perhaps what it can mean. It seems in all those other cases, with slight differences, of course, but they all do indicate some sort of intimacy of some kind, that there's a closeness at that point. Um, whether it literally means face-to-face or not is, is, is unclear in all of these um, as well. So, But again, it's never used as listen. That was definitely a contextual translation. You can by tell I looked confused. <laughs> no, my question on this... That Moses is, you know, the one, um, which I like with this. And I mean, when you go from the Hineni moment, from that yes. moment with the burning bush, to here where they're kind of talking to each other, how is it distinguishable from God coming to Abraham? How is that more personal? How does that 
You know what I mean? It's telling you Moses is the one. But did Abraham also, or do I just not understand this? No, no. Abraham definitely did. Um, the indication in the Torah text seems to be that even though Abraham really had a very close relationship with God, even the, even more so Moses. There was a level of the level of attainment of um, connection with God was even higher. It was longer standing too. It was longer standing, even though Abraham. They went through a lot more. They went through a lot. Water, relationship. Even though Abraham argued with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, they pretty much had one argument, um, and it was really a pretty civil debate. Um, Moses and God, like, they get into it with each other sometimes. They do. I mean, we have a number of episodes where they do that. Um, some of them were God's in, indicting Moses, and some of them were Moses indicting God, and they they seem to get through that. Um, so it, it is. It, it seems to the rabbis that um, a more intimate relationship, and the Torah text it says it. That's the other thing is like the Torah itself defines it that way. The Torah here, and then at the end when the Torah itself says there's never been a prophet like Moses. So. Our, our job would then be, if the Torah says it, is to understand why. What was so special about that relationship? And that's part of what this text indicates. All right. Um, if you, let's look at the next one, 219. Do I have time? Yeah. Um, uh, Midrash Rabbah. Um, this, is, this, is, this is perfect for what we were just talking about. Anybody willing to read so I can stop yapping away? Anybody want to speak to me? Sure. Go ahead, Ron. Thank you. Hitherto, when Moshe was angry with Israel, God appeased his wrath. When God was angry with Israel, Moshe appeased his wrath. This is as it says, God spoke to Moshe face to face. All right, stop. Then what is the Midrash's definition for the sake of this Midrash of that Moshe and God spoke face to face? What's yin and yang. Like yin and yang, in especially in regard to... Yeah. Uh, anger. Anger, right? They each were there to appease the other's anger. That's what it means face to face. Obviously not a literal definition. It's an explanation of what was intended by the term that they were on face to face relationship. It meant Moses got angry and God would step in and say, Moses, come on, man. And then when God got angry, Moses would say, come on, God. Right? And they would, they would be able to calm each other down. Right? Because they would both get angry at certain things, but they had each other to calm each other down. I, I mean, it doesn't say this here. I mean, it's almost like they're spouses, right, in some ways. You know, like they... they it's hugely significant because it goes from the intellectual transmission of information to an emotional relationship. Absolutely. Right. It indicates a very... They're, very intimate relationship very with each other. Very connected. They're very dependent on each other. And they, yeah, they need each other. They need each other. It's very, you know, the Midrash, which is also ancient, I mean, they're, they're talking about God in a way as almost if he needs Moses. That's the most radical part about it. I mean, it would be, I think, most people would be more comfortable saying, you know, Moses needs God. But to say that God needed Moses to calm down, obviously they can, they can do that. Why? Because that is how that episode up on the top of the mountain seemed to take place, right? Now, you could read it differently, metaphorically. God was just testing. 
Well, you just read the story as it is. God gets angry, wants to kill them all. Moses talks him off the ledge and says, whoa, wait a second. You know, and, 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 and he convinces him. God calms down. Okay, I'll, I'll, Moses, I'll take care of it. And goes down. Now, what does Moses do? Moses freaks out and he gets angry. He throws those tablets on the ground. And then he goes back and God said, ah, let's, we'll give him another set, you know. <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. Like so, this is where this is how the midrash can can write such a thing, right? They're not just making it up. Like, oh, let's imagine an emotional relationship. What should we talk about? Oh, they calm each other down. No, I mean they're 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 seeing they're reading the narratives, right? So, but they're applying them in a special way. This is not an obvious read. That's why it's a midrash. Right, if you were just reading along the story, this would not occur to you probably, although it obviously occurred to one rabbi, right? Um, but it wouldn't be the common occurrence that you would translate it this way, but that's how the Midrash is doing it. All right, go ahead, Ron, keep going. God said, shall two angry faces pour out hot water? Have I not told you when I am angry, you must placate me, and that when you are angry, I will placate you? Moshe replied, master of the world, was it not you who became angry with them first? God replied, go and become reconciled with them. Go back to the camp. It was then that Moshe found this opportunity to speak before the Holy One. Blessed is he, said Rabbi Ahab. For he said to him, see, you are not able to remove your love from them even for a moment. All right. So it's kind of going backwards over the story and saying, so the general principle was face-to-face means that they each calm each other down. <clears throat> and then they kind of enter into the nitty-gritty. So uh, they, they make it almost like God suggesting, hey, Moses, let's make a deal. When I get angry, you, you calm me down. When you get angry, Moses is like, what do you mean? Like making this like it's a, when I get angry and when you get angry. You're the one who got really angry, you know. I'm the one who calmed, I just calmed you down. And I don't need to be calmed, you know. And God's saying, yes, you do. Um, you know, you're angry at them. And you just go back down there, you know, and, and you, you, you'll be okay, and everything's going to be all right. And so we're going to do this for each other. I did get angry. You helped me. You're angry now. I'm helping you. Go back. Reconcile. Every, everything's going to be okay. Um, and then Rabbi Acha adds, see, you are not able to remove your love from them even for a moment. This idea that when Moses hears that from God, he's like, ah, see, God, you love the people. You want me to go down there and be nice to them and be a good leader. You want what's best for them. Just remember this one, right? You know, you're concerned about them too. You love them. You're not just doing this because I talked to you off the ledge. You love them. And then this is a moment where they, they both rec- they each help each other recognize how much they care about the people, how much they love the people. And it becomes about not just a relationship between God and Moses, but how the relationship between God and Moses ends up benefiting the relationship between God and the people of Israel. That's what that last sentence brings in. It's, it connects why this intimate relationship is important, helpful to, beneficial to the, the, the people of Israel. It's not just about Moses and God. Do you see that? Okay. Um, any comments or questions? Did you find that interesting, compelling? Yeah, it was it. All right, it's good to learn. Um, all right, I wanted to do uh, Rashi very much so. This may end up being the last one we do. Um, and then if I didn't answer any questions that you asked before, because now I don't even remember, um, please, you will probably remember your own question. Bring it up in our last five minutes. Rashi says, 
All right, I'm going to end up reading again because of time. Sorry. You're going to have to listen to my voice more. He's, he, Rashi is doing his normal style of commentary, which is word by word or phrase by phrase. Like, it's not like a paragraph, you know. He doesn't, doesn't do it in paragraph form. Now, if it is true that I have found favor in your eyes, right? This is when Moses is saying to God, well, if it's true that I'm so great, then answer these questions for me, right? Um, if it is true that I have found favor in your eyes, inform me of your ways. Remember that? That was the first thing he asked. Before he said your presence, he said, inform me of your ways. How does Rashi understand? What reward do you give to those who find favor in your eyes? So this is along the lines of perhaps the impetuous um, Moshe, who's like, now that he's got God's ear, he's like, okay, fine, I'm allowed to talk to you like person to person, so... What's in it for me? You told me I'm really great, right? And that being close to you is like really good, right? So what's so good about it, right? What's the reward? What's, what's, what, do I, what do I getting in it for? So that I should know you in order to find favor in your eyes. What does that mean? And I will there, know thereby the character of your recompense, like what I'm going to get. What does me finding favor by you mean? The meaning of in order to find favor in your eyes is in order that I shall find out how great the reward of finding favor is, right? So if I find favor in your eyes because I'm doing all this good stuff, then what's the reward for finding favor in your eyes? I want to know what's going on here. So how does this paint Moshe so far? Not so great. You know, it kind of reduces him a little bit. Like, oh, we thought this he was... like, way harsher than, like, what I was, like, yes. saying. Yes. Like, yes. way harsher. Yes. <laughs> harsher than what you were saying. I was just like, you know, Moses was just getting a little, like, ahead of himself, a little right. greedy. This is kind of, like, way greedy. Right. Like, so, <laughs> but wait, though. Rashi's going to surprise us. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me know. See that this nation is your people. What does that mean? Remember he says, see that this nation is your people? That you should not say... And I will make of you a great nation, and abandon these. See that they have long been your people, and if you are repelled by them, I do not count on those who will emerge from my loins to survive. Let me realize the payment of my reward through this people. Our rabbis have offered midrashic explanations for this verse, but I have come to explain this verse in a proper fashion and order. He's saying that last line is to say, there are other rabbis who have tried to drosh this like creatively. This is what I think it actually means, is what he's saying. The medieval rabbis, um, they do not speak with, uh, it's seeming like we would, with humility. Um, I don't know that they really felt that way or if it was a style of like, that's how you had to write to like, Make your point. Um, but you read it like Rambam. I mean, he's a great guy, but he was always like, don't read any of those other guys. I have the truth, you know, or that's how they would speak. Like, this one knows nothing. You know, it's very interesting. Um, anyway, what, what does this paragraph do, this last little interpretation that Rashi does? Because it's a little cryptic because it's in short form. It's a little hard to understand. Does anybody feel like they... Yeah, but we thought he was talking about payment and reward in the, in the sense of something almost financial, monetary, or some sort of gift. But what he's saying is, let this actual reward, whatever it is that is coming to me by being this close to you, let, this, let my reward be the continuation of this great nation. Great. Generation. Part of it is that it's great. Um, there's one other aspect to it. It perhaps might be one step more complicated than that and maybe 
more interesting or even more beautiful, which is, it's almost like Rashi's leading God down a path. He pretends like he's acting like a jerk. And he says, you know, you told me how great I was, right? You told me I was... You mean Moses. Did I say Moses? Sorry, yes. That Moses... Moses is pretending, he's leading God because he's pretending that he's going to be a jerk and then he like surprises him at the end. So Moses says to God, you told me I'm really great, right? right? You told me that there's like reward for doing that, right? Right, right, right. You know, so I want to know what that reward is. And then when God's like, oh, right. <laughs> yes, you're going to get a big reward, you know, and all that stuff. Then Rashi says, fine, well, if you agree that I am the greatest and I get a reward, then I want you to know something. I want my reward, right? Only, I only gonna. This is this is part of the deal that I'm only gonna get my reward through the continuation of the people, right? In other words, I don't want you to say this is a strange interpretation. So that this nation is your people. So you should not say, I will make of you, meaning Moses only, a great nation. I don't want to be. I don't want my reward to be that I am the great nation. And through my own loins, meaning like my children will be your people and your great nation. I only want the reward to be gained through your and my continued association with the greatness of the people of Israel. That's how I want to do it. So he's almost like leading God down, saying, yeah, yeah, I get the reward, right? And then he defines the reward to make sure that it includes the success of the the nation. It's a sacrifice bond. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's swinging for the fences. Right. Isn't it? <laughs> I, I see a little more humility in it because he does say, pretty much, we can't do it without you. He says, um, if you're repelled by them, and do not count on those who will emerge. So what he's saying is, with your love and with your support, we can have this. I, I see it as more humble than just pass it on to the future generations. I think he also says we need you. It could be. I mean, clearly, he does need it, God. I mean, I think that's part of it for sure. I do think Moses is being, it's portraying Moses as being uh, tough with God. You know, like, you're kind of forcing him into the deal that he wants him to be in. Um, and I don't think it's a... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but I don't think, it, I, I think that the way that Rashi probably looks at it is, is that, you know, God's smiling and happy about this, right? This is what God wants to do anyway. Um, but Moses is basically, in my opinion, what he's saying, you know, even if you're repelled by them, right? Even if you were like, like you were on the mountain, remember God, when you wanted to get rid of them? Even if you're repelled by them, I, I don't want you to start over just with me, because that's what he had said up on top of the mountain. And I, I don't, I'm not interested in just my children and my generations being your people, right? I, I, only, I only want to be in this special relationship with you. I only want to cash in my reward for being the singled out one and blah, 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 if, if it means that we're doing this with the people of Israel. And so he uses his favorite status, not for his own personal gain because he wants the lottery. You know, it's yeah. because he wants to help the people of Israel. Ooh, somebody had hands up. Right. Yeah, he's also saying, you know, and if you want it to be through my ones, my children, that's not going to work. Right. Absolutely. And there's a tradition uh, in the chuppah where the um, you, you sort of um, do a little bit of a tug with the rabbi of a. Uh, is this was this only in my wedding? There's a uh, sort of a handkerchief, and it symbolizes, you know, yes, yes, contract. 
Yeah, you know how you know how bad do you want this kind of uh, <laughs> to, to to paraphrase horribly? But I mean, it it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of that sort of back and forth uh, relationship a little bit. Very nice. All right. Um, so the other one that I would have studied with you would have been number nine. So and ten actually, um, nine and ten. Uh, we don't have time for nine, for sure. Did, uh, we only have two minutes. Did anybody's question not even get addressed that you had before? Is anybody waiting on? I, I guess the one thing, it, we're trying to see, we're seeing here the sorting out of how to come close to God. When and how. And either there were, there was a time in which they were given instruction and then there were consequences for violating the instruction. Or... They're learning it as they go through trial and error. Mm -hmm. Is it more the latter? <clears throat> what, what's the what's the opposite? What's the are they trial and error there versus? There was a time when they were told this is how to do it. Oh, I see go. what you're saying. It doesn't seem as if they were ever told that, but you know they keep making mistakes, and mistakes define the boundaries of acceptable behavior. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's it's becoming more like that. There. Are, and and there, I I happen to agree that with with Jay from the, the the debate before that I do think that the giving of law and what happens on Mount Sinai changes it from I'm God who's going to carry you out on angels' wings and save you and you're kind of just following me around and doing what you know following after my grace and all that kind of stuff to. We're going to be some sort of partners, even if you consider the breed to be an unequal partnership. We're some sort of partners here, and you, you're going to have to figure a lot of these things out yourself. And, uh, you're going to be in situations where it's going to be a little bit ambiguous. For example, the 40 days thing that Moses was on the mountain. I mean, somebody calculated that, you know, he was late, and then they made this decision about what to do about it because Moses was late, and you know, they had to pay those consequences, and now they're going to have a system of laws and rituals that they're going to have to be responsible for, and God isn't just going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Um, anybody else have a question that didn't get addressed? If, if you were willing to stay for two more minutes, I would say read number nine at home. I think it's a good mm -hmm. one. If you just want to look for, at ten for a second, I'm, I resist the attempt to explain everything about it because it's a full text. But just, just to leave it, yeah, but just to leave it with you, I'm going to read it to you. This is from the Talmud. And I will take away my hand. This is when God, remember the cleft of the rock? God yeah. says, I'm going to put my hand, you're going to see my back. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in 226, uh, number 10. Um, 226, I'm sorry, number 10. So God says, I'm going to put my hand in cover, and then you're going to see my, my back. So I will take away my hand, and you will see my back. Rabbi Akana Bar Bazana said in the name of Rabbi Shimon the Pious, this teaches us that the Holy One, blessed be he, showed Moshe the knot, of his tefillin. Okay. So in this imagery, God is wearing tefillin, and the knot is right here in a, on its tefillin. So it, it shows that you know that's what he's looking at. God wearing tefillin. Why would God need to wear tefillin? Why does God need to wear tefillin? Oh, he doesn't need to. Um, I think I don't think that the text is saying that God needs to wear tefillin. It's a source to figure out what tefillin are. Okay, so there's a practical thing about that. What could be the meaning of an imagery of seeing God with tefillin? Yeah, not, not his 
That's true. So one is it just an image to help them under help a, a contemporary reader for them. It's Talmudic contemporary. Showing understand what it means to see the back of God. This is a way to get close to God. I think so. Something along those lines, like. What is God's goodness? What's the accessible nature of God? How can we follow God, you know, connect with God the best that we can, similar to the way that Moses did on the top of the mountain? Sure. Meet Svod. Meet Svod. Davening. Tefillin. Whatever it is, Tefillin could just be representative of either prayer or Svod in general. You want to follow God's goodness? You want to see God the best way that you can because you can't see God's front, you can only see God's back, right? Do the mitzvot, right? So God, that was God's message to Moses in the cleft of the rock. You can't see my face. Are you really going to know the true nature of my essence? Talmud says impossible. You're never going to know that. It's just impossible, right? How do you connect with God? Mitzvot, prayer, Jewish tradition, whatever. It's a, you, it's a practical answer as opposed to a very theological answer to the question of how we see God. I'll let you chew on that. Until next time. Hopefully I'll see you before next time, but for this class, until next time.